is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Russia must stop its Syrian operation. That's a demand from NATO defence ministers meeting in Brussels today. Britain is sending more troops to the Russian border as tensions rise in Europe. And this is our policy of persistent presence and aid for our allies on the eastern flank of NATO. Afghanistan, the US commander says America must rethink the total withdrawal plan. NATO defence ministers are meeting in Brussels to discuss concerns about Russia's escalating military campaign in Syria. The NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg called on Russia to stop propping up President Assad. I call on Russia to play a constructive and cooperative role in the fight against ISIS, not to continue to support the Assad regime, because to support uh, the regime is not a constructive contribution to uh, a peaceful and lasting political solution in uh, Syria. Meanwhile, Britain is to station a small number of troops in the Baltic states in another move to deter Russian aggression. Defence Secretary Michael Fallon announced the persistent deployment as he arrived in Brussels this morning. Well, this is further reassurance for our allies on the eastern flank of NATO, for the Baltic states and for Poland. And uh, that is part of our policy of more persistent presence on the eastern side of NATO to respond to any further Russian provocation and aggression. Large numbers of troops? Uh, a small number of uh, troops to start with. Secretary of State, do you now accept that NATO is on the back foot? NATO uh, and, and Britain, of course, therefore, have all been outboxed by the Russians? Russia is making a very serious situation in Syria much more dangerous. And we'll be meeting today to see what we can do to de-escalate this uh, crisis, particularly uh, in terms of air safety. We'll be calling on Russia specifically to stop propping up the Assad regime, to use their influence constructively to stop Assad bombing his own uh, civilians and themselves to avoid the use of uh, unguided munitions in areas that uh, are not being controlled uh, by ISIL. And we'll be also offering more support to uh, Syria's neighbours, particularly Turkey and Jordan. But realistically, you know that they are not going to support, they are not going to stop supporting President Assad, aren't they? Well, if Russia wants to help here, the, the, single, uh, the single most helpful thing they could do is use their influence on Assad to stop barrel bombing his own uh, civilians, uh, their children, his own cities and villages. That's how Russia could help now to resolve this conflict. Defence Secretary, can you tell British troops who may deploy to the Baltics what you'll actually be expecting them to do there? Well, they will be part of the new uh, tacit uh, mission, the new training, evaluation and capacity building mission uh, in the Baltic states uh, and Poland. They'll be part of a more persistent presence by uh, NATO forces. We contributed last year to Baltic air policing. We'll be doing that again next year. And this is our policy of persistent presence and aid for our allies on the eastern flank of NATO in response to, to uh, Russian aggression and provocation. That was the Defence Secretary Michael Fallon answering a question by James Hurst, who joins us now from Brussels. So, James, good to hear you there. Um, tell us more about, about these troops exactly. How many and where, do you think? So it is uh, about 100, we are being told, will uh, will deploy. So equivalent to uh, an army company. Uh, fr from the way they're talking, I mean, there's still details being sorted out, so we don't know who the first to go 
are going to be. Uh, we don't know exactly when they're going to go, but my understanding is the aim is to get them out there within the next few months. I, I get a sense, again, we've not been given the detail, but I get a sense from the way people are talking that you know, this is going to be spread out, this training, uh, across those three Baltic states, also uh, assisting Poland. Uh, but the key word you heard from Michael Fallon, a persistent presence. This is open-ended, so when that first company finishes, another company will go out and follow them. Note mm. persistent, not permanent, because that would break agreements with Russia that were signed after the Cold War. But it is open-ended. There is no end date. And, uh, you know, for, um, um, until the situation changes, British troops are going to keep rotating through. Yeah. Uh, what's being said about Russia's involvement in Syria? Uh, a lot of words, a lot of words of condemnation. I thought the, the, the choice of the Defence Secretary's word, de trying to de-escalate the situation, uh, was quite interesting. Uh, in terms of the NATO Secretary-General, he, he has called once again uh, for Russia to change the way it is uh, working in Syria. He talked about seeing an escalation of Russian military activity, uh, which raises serious concerns. Um, he's concerned here particularly that, about the targets that Russia is choosing, the fact that it is not just so-called Islamic State, it is other opponents of President Assad. Um, Russia's actions, uh, the Secretary General said, to support the regime are not helpful uh, and of course the you know there's also this question of Turkish uh, airspace apparently being violated once again we were told that is unacceptable but that is all we are hearing is mm. words uh, I don't think you're going to get any specific actions of course NATO is not directly involved in the US led coalition even though NATO members uh, largely are uh, what I did think was interesting though was uh, when talking about the uh, NATO response force this big 40,000 person force uh, the NATO Secretary General saying you know, if we needed to deploy it south we could, our military commanders he said have confirmed they've already got what they need in place, capabilities and infrastructure, so they mm. have looked and checked if they need to go south, they can all right, James Hurst in Brussels, thank you for that. Um, well, listening to all of that is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. What do you think is more worrying, Russia in Syria or Russia in Eastern Europe? I think they're both worrying, and they're both worrying in certain degrees. I mean, for example, um, the present... If you, if you look at present or well, past 48 hours and what's to come for, say, a week, um, you cannot have, as you would have, American and um, uh, Russian air forces operating in the same theatre. Because if you do that without absolute control, and you won't get absolute control, you're asking for miscalculation. Well, they are already doing it, aren't they? They are already doing it, but the Americans are now saying that they could actually get, find themselves operating against similar targets, and that's what you can't have. So that's a danger. The other side of it, you have Mr. <laughs> Stoltenberg saying um, it's not acceptable to NATO, uh, it's not, uh, don't have a, um, a, a political solution that's acceptable to NATO. No, but it's acceptable to a lot of other people, the idea of maintaining Assad in power, and then the Russians are turning around at the moment and say, "Well, look, look what you did when you when you disrupted things in in, in Libya. Look what you th uh, did when you started disrupting things in, in in Iraq, and say that we are taking the right course." The other things that the Russians or Mr. Putin has been told quite clearly by his intelligence people is this: IS is very defeatable. IS is not the power that other people have said it is. It is not a country, for example, and so when people come in to support a movement, it is ideology. It's quite a different thing from mm. a, a state. And so Russia is saying, we can actually do this. Mm. And, and Putin is taking 
not quite a chance, but a considerable sort of gamble by saying we are actually going to do it. Let's just go back to this announcement about the British deployment to the Baltic states, a persistent presence, the Defence Secretary calls it. What do you make of this decision? Well, in fact, we knew about this decision about three months ago. Uh, it was it was part of a package, or would be part of a package to do it. And what it is is training, evaluation and analysis. And that's why it's at company level. It's company, uh, slightly reduced company level. So it's nothing new? It's the same, same it, announcement, it, no, repackaged, no, it is it? No, it's not repackaged. It's part of what was expected in the package that was announced a couple of, two or three months ago. But the important thing about it is is the, the idea it's going to be there for some time. It's not just doing it in an exercise. It's actually doing it as part of deployment. Now, if you've got 100 people there, you probably need to have identified somewhere in the region of 600 people to, mm. be, able to get, be able to go and do it. But it, it is probably infantry. It may be, at the, at the most extent, a, a mechanised infantry. It is definitely going to be signals. It's definitely going to be communicators as well. While we're talking about exercises... Uh, Cougar 15 is underway. It's involving HMS Bulwark, the flagship of the Royal Navy. It does see it's another NATO exercise, an annual one, right? Uh, it does seem that NATO has been sort of consistently on exercise in the last year. You're right. It, it's not just consistently exercise. It's beefing up exercises that we knew were going to take place. You know, an exercise... Can but this one's big, a bigger yeah, deal than before. It, yeah, we knew about this, and it is it is one of the biggest joint exercises of the joint joint force exercises. Uh, and so, for example, you you get quite a lot of Royal Marine Special Forces embarked in this sort of exercise. Well, and also in communications. It'll be I, the, the idea is, can you communicate... Can you operate as a joint task force, for example? How long can you operate for that uh, and, and against what sort of opposition? And that's why it's the task force which will be tested rather than simply uh, a, a display of strength towards the, uh, towards the Russians. Let, let's talk more now about Russia's involvement in Syria. Russia has said its warships launched cruise missiles against jihadist targets there. Moscow said 26 missiles were fired from ships in the Caspian Sea, destroying Islamic State and al-Nusra targets. But there's been no independent confirmation of the Russian claims. Earlier on today, I spoke to former British ambassador to Moscow, Sir Tony Brenton, who has recently visited Russia, and I asked him what the Russians are talking about. The Russians are pretty nervous, I think it's fair to say. Um, while there was more or less total support for what happened in Ukraine, uh, Russia intervening in Syria is a step outside of their sort of natural, what they view as their natural area of influence. Uh, their most recent folk memory, if I can put it that way, is of their intervention in Afghanistan in the 1980s, which, of course, was a disaster. Uh, and because of the, the dead Russian soldiers coming back from Afghanistan was a big factor in bringing down the communist regime. In addition, there are 20 million or so Russian Muslim citizens, and they're very worried about generating um, jihad jihadism in, in that group. So they've got all sorts of reasons to be nervous about what's going on. You say they're nervous, but Russian actions don't seem to, to bear that out, given the, the strikes in Syria and, and the most recent cruise missile attacks that we're hearing about. Yeah, no, I mean, they're nervous at the, you know, as you talk to people and even experts, but they're pretty confident that they're doing a right and necessary thing. Um, their view, Mr. Putin's view, is very clearly that the West has been weak and incompetent in, in the Middle East. The, the, the famous line from his speech to the UN last week addressed to the West was, do you know what you have done? And what he was referring to is the fact that the West brought down Saddam Hussein in, um, in Iraq, and that was then followed by Islamist chaos. 
The West brought down Gaddafi in Libya, and that was followed by Islamist chaos. And they're absolutely determined that the same should not happen in Syria, which is why they're giving such unstinting backing to Assad, even though they know very well that he's been an appalling dictator. What do you think they care about most, though, in Syria? Is it propping up President Assad or eradicating IS? No, what they, what they care about, what they're worried about, is they have a real domestic Islamist problem. If you think back to the Chechen war back in the, you know, the year 2000 and so on, and the appalling terrorist atrocities that were linked to that, if you remember the Beslan killing of 100 schoolchildren, um, there was a big Islamist dimension to that, and they've had outrages since. Putin has said there are 2,000 Russians fighting in Syria on the side of ISIS. So he has a problem very similar to the problem we have in the UK, that those people may come back and may perpetrate terrorism inside Russia. He's determined to stop that. And as I say, he doesn't think the West is doing the right things there, that the West is capable of stopping it. And indeed, Western policy of bringing down Assad could make the situation worse. And that's why he's doing what he's doing. That was Sir Tony Brenton talking to me earlier. Christopher, what do you make of all of that? I think that we have to remember uh, particularly really almost why this whole thing started and how the Russians got involved. Um, it is certainly true that the Russians or Putin is saying that Assad is my last opportunity perhaps to have my empire in the Middle East as it used Although to Although he's have. not saying it that openly, he's is he? Let's face it. He's not saying that openly. Um, you, you've know, obviously got a direct line inside his head there, Christopher. Uh, I think I probably have sometimes. Um, I mean, when you see what happened, for example, uh, last uh, 48 hours, four ships, 26 cruise missiles, these are the SN, SSN-30s. Um, uh, anybody could have done it. The Americans have done it. They have used these sort of systems. Uh, Putin's saying, look, we've got them too. We can, we can control this thing from wherever we go. All right, let's talk a little bit about how, how we got to where we are. Just as it is at the moment, talk to us about the, the main players in Syria at the moment. OK, if you go back to March, 20, March 2011, and you had a demonstration, uh, a, a protest demonstration in uh, Damascus. Uh, this gradually, this extended itself to a place called Dara, and this is the most important thing about what's happened in Syria. In all other places where the, where the democracy was, uh, was trying to be, implant democracy instead of the regimes that were all there, all happening in capitals. This happened in Dara. This was the place that, that in, in some ways, Assad believed that he, he could control uh, completely. By the time you get to, what, March 2013, when he's starting to use chemical weapons, uh, you're only, what, 18 months in, 100,000 people had been killed already. So what you there, by then you had was this. You had Assad supported by Iran. You had Assad supported by Hezbollah. You had Assad supported by Russia. On the other side, you had the, the Free Army, which were the rebels supported by the British, the Americans, the Australians and French. At one stage, people turned around and said, why are we doing this? The question was ignored. And so the war was allowed to go along with sponsors. They believed they also, or the rebels believed that we were actually sponsoring their war. And there, were, there was always this talk about the moderate op opposition, the opposition, who they were, and uh, an IS emerging. Just tell us what what it is now, what what we have there at the moment, and how it came to be like that. We have we have the opposition rebels who are a mixed bag. Nobody is in absolute command. Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Qatar are actually funding and, and, and giving the rebels 
um, uh, weapons. Russia has stepped in now and started to knock off some of the communications systems, for example, of the rebels. The other day, they knocked out a CIA communications system as well. And they are saying, if we knock these people out, we can keep Assad in power. And then the Russians are saying this. If these guys, these so-called rebels, got into power over Assad, we would have another uh, Libya because you would have a bloodbath as a result of these guys getting just, in. Just to talk a little bit more about Russia and its involvement, it, amid all of this, it's still not abandoned its operations in Europe, has it? No, I think the most important thing that's happened, overseen by the uh, overlooked because of what's happening in Syria, is the fact that the Russians have gone to Belarus, which is an old client state of the Soviet Union, and said, we are going to take over an air base in Belarus... So, therefore, eyeballing the border with NATO. We are going to update it into an operational command centre. We're going to put in two squadrons of aircraft. And this is going to happen, is it? The Belarusians are saying, no way. So it's going to happen. Sit rep with Still to come, a US general says America must rethink its withdrawal from Afghanistan. This is BFBS. Sit rep. So, who is controlling your smartphone? Well, according to the US whistleblower Edward Snowden, it may not be you. He's told the BBC's Panorama that he believes GCHQ has the power to control individual smartphones. Let's hear some of that interview. Snowden told us about a secret GCHQ training programme codenamed Smurfs. Cartoon characters devised by Belgian comic artist Peo. Dreamy Smurf is the power management tool, which means turning your phone on or off without you knowing. Even if I've turned my phone off. Right. And then we've got Nosy Smurf. What's Nosy Smurf? Nosy Smurf is the, the hot miking tool. So, for example, if it's in your pocket, they can turn the microphone on and listen to everything that's going on around you. Even if my phone is switched off? Even if your phone's switched off, because they've got the other tools for turning it on. Tracker Smurf. What's Tracker Smurf? Uh, that's a geolocation tool which uh, allows them to follow you with a greater precision than you would get uh, from the typical triangulation of cell phone towers. They want to own your phone instead of you. That was Edward Snowden speaking on Panorama earlier this week and it's still available on the BBC iPlayer. The other voice you heard there was the BBC journalist Peter Taylor who joins us now. Hello, Peter. Hello, Kate. It does seem every time Edward Snowden says something we all assume it's going to be sensational. Was it? I think the fact that GCHQ can tap our telephones, tap our mobile phones, is not new. I think what is new is the detailed revelation about GCHQ's Smurf program, where they use these Belgian cartoon characters to illustrate the different methods in which GCHQ can get into your phone. I think you know what was new about it was that you had for the first time Edward Snowden talking about this particular uh, secret document that he released. I think it's important to remember that we're talking about the capability of GCHQ to use these various Smurf techniques, the mm. capability that they can actually do it. That's very different from the intent to use it, that the 
the purpose of having this ability to tap into telephones, tap into smartphones, to listen to people even when their phones are switched off, it's aimed directly at the people that the agencies wish to track down, the terrorists, the paedophiles, the organised yes. criminals. I take it from what you're saying then that you personally were not that troubled by this capability. No, and I don't think um, you know, our audience, your listeners, should be troubled by it because as long as they know the capability is there, the question then is... Is that capability justified? Is that something that Parliament should go along with? And all these issues and other issues raised by Edward Snowden will be uh, reflected and discussed in the legislation that we're expecting uh, later this month, the so-called uh, Investigatory Powers Act. So it's really... Imp the, w the point that Snowden was making in the programme is that the public should be aware of what is being done and what can be done in their name, and they basically have got to agree to it and sign it off via our parliamentarians, via our, our you know, members of parliament, uh, or not. So that's the reason why Snowden did what he did, and I think that was one of the, um, one of the reasons for making the programme. So how are the Russians actually using Edward Snowden at the moment? Are they, are they using him the same way as the West was using Oleg Gordievsky, KGB defector, in London 25 years ago? I don't think the Russians are using Edward Snowden except letting him talk on specific occasions. We were very conscious that when we were in Russia uh, doing the interview and when we were planning the interview, the Russians probably knew what we were doing, but we were not interrupted at all. In a way... It the Russians don't have to do anything. Edward Snowden does it for them by simply being there. One of the things I put to him was the irony of of Edward Snowden being in the champion of civil liberties and freedom, being the guest of one of the most you know, illiberal countries in the world. How's he living out there at the moment? He... He didn't go into the personal side of his um, of his condition. He didn't really want to. But I think, reading between the lines, he's finding it quite difficult. I didn't ask him about how he survived. I said, you've got to clothe yourself and eat and everything else. <laughs> mm -hmm. He said, well, I, I brought a lot of money with me. From, I made a lot of money when I was in Florida. I brought it out with me. And I said, in cash? He said, yes. I said, how much? He said, if I tell you, the inland revenue are going to be chasing me. <laughs> so, you know, he, he survives. He's... He's very, he's very fit. Uh, he's utterly committed in the rightness of what he's done. He has no regrets about what he has done. He wants to go back to America, but really he's caught between a rock and a hard place. The rock being the, the, the prospect of being doomed to spend the rest of his days in Russia, the hard place being going back to America to be charged under the Espionage Act that faces a penalty of up to 30, 35 years in jail because he's being tried as a spy. What Snowden says is, I am not a spy, I'm a whistleblower, and I should not be tried as a spy, and mm. I want to try and do a, a, a deal to do a plea bargain. You, you talk about the doom of living in Russia. Did you get a sense of, um, of what, he, what he said about that and how he feels about living there? He didn't really talk about it. Uh, I asked him about, uh, you know, I said, you know, come off it. Here you are in Russia, courtesy... Um, President Putin, there must be 
something in it for them. There must be a quid pro quo. Have you talked? You must have talked to the FSB. That's the KGB's successor. He said, "I only talked to them at the airport. I didn't give them anything. Mm. I didn't tell them anything. All that I have is no longer with me. It's on. Uh, on I, technically, I don't understand it. It's on sort of some sort of private cloud out there." Mm. So he says, he, "You know, he hasn't done any deal, and I think he's probably right to say the Russians don't have to do anything. The advantage to Edward Snowden is that he's there in." Russia criticising America. Christopher Lee. Um, I, Peter, I, I seem to remember one of my first jobs was the correspondent in, in Moscow when Kim Philby and Donald McLean, the two British spies, uh, were living there. And they were very, very sad characters. I mean, one of my jobs was actually go to look at their, the glass-fronted uh, post box <laughs> to see if the Times had arrived for Kim Philby because he loved doing the Times. <laughs> uh, and the crossword. Uh, and, uh, What's the crossword The, the Times crossword, <laughs> you see. And that sort of... And um, one morning I went and the, and the Times had gone. It, it was... Uh, had been collected and I missed him. But this was the great sort of venture, this, this, this game. The other thing about it is they were terribly homesick. yes. And I wonder if that is... I mean, living in today, I mean, he is living in relative luxury compared with how they lived. What do you think will happen to him, Peter? I think... I think he he is homesick. He desperately wants to go back to America. He's prepared to stand trial, but not to go down for 30, 35 years. If he does go back, he will face trial. Uh, I think, personally, that he will probably do some sort of plea bargain whereby he agrees to certain conditions in return for a a, a more restricted sentence and and he will try or his his lawyers will try and negotiate um, a, a deal whereby he's tried not under the draconian espionage act i said to him in the program i i put to him the charges under the espionage act that he faces and i said and you're guilty as charged on on each and every one of them, aren't you? To which he basically said, yes, but I'm not a spy. I shouldn't be charged under that act. He won't, so He won't get back as long as Senator McCain is in the, uh, uh, Capitol <laughs> Hill. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, there we'll leave it. Peter Taylor, thank you very much for your time today. Very interesting. Thank you, Kate. Uh, the International Medicine Char- Medical Charity, Médecins Sans Frontières, has reiterated its demand for an independent investiga- investigation into the US airstrike on its hospital in Afghanistan, despite a personal apology from President Obama. MSF said the bombing Kunduz on Saturday must be investigated by an international fact-finding commission under the Geneva Conventions. Well, this week, the US commander of NATO troops in Afghanistan, General John Campbell, told a Senate hearing that President Obama needs to rethink the partial drawdown of US troops from the country next year. Christopher, should US troops stay in Afghanistan? There are 9,600 at the moment. Uh, the idea that really by in a couple of years there won't be anything at all except for a handful, certainly by you know the drawdown by uh, the 2018 is going to be significant. Every sign at the moment is that if Obama can't push it through, the new president will actually have the job of actually keeping a larger force there at the moment. The Germans have already agreed to keep their 1,000 uh, force there for a, another another year. So I think this is going to happen. This this bombing of this hospital in Kunduz, um, how on earth could it happen? Well, the, 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 the terrifying side of it is that there's a lot of evidence coming out of there to show that American special forces talked the pilot down onto the target. Now, if that comes to light in in either an American um, uh, Pentagon 
examination of it or perhaps an independent examination of it, it it's either you accept it as a one-off tragedy... Do you, do you think there will be some kind of charges then put forward uh, as well, a result of this? Uh, Despite the admission it was a mistake by the Americans. Yeah, because, well, you see, the Americans have a totally different sort of uh, idea uh, in as much as they say, look, we have accidents of war. We're terribly sorry about them. You get a presidential sorry-sorry uh, note for them. But that happens. That's part of war. Sport now. I never thought I'd say that. Forget the Rugby World Cup. There's another rugby tournament starting today. The International Defence Rugby Competition has begun. Um, Quite a lot of players involved in this, Christopher. 500. 500. That's almost a battalion Mm. in in, in army strength. I tell you what I think about this um, and why it should be interest people. With all the commitments that British troops have all over the world, Navy, Air Force and Army, mm. everywhere, you've still got this sort of element. It's, the, it's part of the whole holding together and the ethos of service life. Just tell me about a meeting that was going to happen that isn't going to happen. Yeah, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, was supposed to be meeting Angela Merkel this afternoon in Berlin. He's called short that meeting. There is word going around in the Middle East that there's going to be a new intifada. Now, you imagine a new war in the Middle East involving Gaza, etc. How on earth does everybody try to manage that when they've got Syria going on, Mm. what's going on in Iraq itself? The world's getting a bit sour. And and, and that's the point. Having said that, uh, Merkel Netanyahu off, but Merkel Cameron on. On the dear boy's birthday. Yes, that'll be tomorrow, won't it? Can you imagine? What's she going to bring him? What's she going <laughs> Just bring him? my mind boggles, doesn't no, it? No, no, I've got it. Sauerkraut? I've, no, no, not sauerkraut. No, no, no. <laughs> sa- 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 no. Um, you said it was a sour world these days. No, I think Ledenhausen. <laughs> I can see <laughs> him slapping his... <laughs> the pair of them slapping thighs together. And there we must leave it. My thanks to all of our contributors. Uh, do keep your comments coming in on Twitter. We are at BFBS SITREP. Join us again this time next week. But from me, Kate Chibbo, thank you for listening. See you again this time next week. Bye-bye for now. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio.